Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day, and I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn over to the book of Romans. Uh, we are continuing our journey through this book. Uh, we've been here for a while now, and we find ourselves today at Romans chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13 today. Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. Now, I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed walking through this letter to the Romans. Uh, it is filled with uh, much depth and encouragement and hope and even exhortation here as we find ourselves in these latter chapters of being encouraged as the people of God. So we turn our attention now to the book of Romans chapter 15. I'm going to be, begin reading in verse 7 and we're going to read down through verse 13. These are the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. We read, Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Father, you are the God of hope, and we ask that you would give us hope today and strengthen our hope and continue to help us persevere and abound in hope, that we would know the joy and peace in believing, that our fellowship and our unity together at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church would be defined by and marked by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you come now and help us and instruct us and continue to make us more like Jesus that you would be praised. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, back in the 1980s to the early 2000s, there was a movement among Christian churches called, this generally called the church growth movement become a very strong emphasis not only in churches but in seminaries. And as we saw this church growth movement, what we saw in that movement was that marketing became real big. Churches became very pragmatic in their approach to ministry. It was the rise of the megachurch as well. You saw bigger and bigger churches. Not all of the things that we find in the church growth movement were, were bad, but there were some things in it that were not helpful at all. One of the most unhelpful emphases in the movement was something that was called the homogeneous unit principle. Now that was just kind of picking up on a, a common phrase, the old saying goes, birds of a feather flock together. And so this idea of the homogeneous unit principle was that churches would build and plant other churches of people who are alike. After all, it was easier and more successful. It's easier to plant 
churches where people are like each other. There's not much opportunity or as much opportunity for division or other kinds of things to, to cause the unity to fracture, those kinds of things. And so that's what plenty of churches did. For a long time, churches sought to plant and build church on sameness. So we ended up with all kinds of churches. We have cowboy churches, biker churches, hipster churches, attractional churches, traditional churches, contemporary churches, affluent, suburban, white flight kind of churches, urban, inner city churches. And and on and on we can go. You get the idea of seeking to target a particular group of people and plant churches with that particular group of people in mind. Sounds really good on the surface, but it completely goes against the, the teaching of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that churches shouldn't look different, that you should just have a carbon copy stamp of church and wherever you find a church in North America or across the world for that matter it should always look exactly the same listen I grew up in a very white blue-collar town in the south so guess what many of our churches looked like they were white and blue-collar and the predominant culture of, of of church life in those small towns in East Tennessee looked that way and so in many parts of the world you're going to see churches resemble their communities and look more and more like the community around them. Well, the point of saying all of this is is simply to say churches should not seek to plant churches or build churches around sameness. Churches should seek to plant churches and build churches around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever the community looks like around us, that's what our churches ought to look like and resemble. It would have been super easy for there have been to been two churches in Rome. Here's the Jewish Christians over here, here are the Gentile Christians over there. Or even worse, we've got one church but two services. Come to the Jewish service at 9 a.m., very traditional. We're going to practice all of the holy days, and we're going to only eat vegetables and not drink wine and those kinds of things. But you can come at 11 Sleep in, Gentiles, and you can have your Gentile service at 11 a.m., right? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that's not at all what was going on. Um, You don't have two different kinds of churches. That would have been easy to do. After all, one of the strongest hatreds that we can find really in human history was the hatred that existed between Jewish people and Gentile people. And now what we find is both of these groups are in the same church at Rome. And Paul does not write to them in chapters 1 through 11 and say, here's the gospel, now go plant Jewish churches and Gentile churches so that everybody can be happy. Here's the church for the weak, here's the church for the strong. Not at all. He's writing to the church at Rome and he assumes that this church is going to have both kinds of people in it. It's a big point that the Bible makes throughout the New Testament. We can even see it in the Old Testament. Unity amidst diversity glorifies God. That's basically what Paul has been saying for a while now in Romans. A community that's built on the gospel 
primarily, not our background, not our social preferences, not our political leanings or our policy opinions or ethnic heritage, a a community of believers that is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ is what is primarily in view in the scriptures. As we come to Romans chapter 15, this is what Paul continues to speak into. He's speaking into this culture, this community of believers that has both Jews and Gentiles, both the weak in faith and both the strong in faith. He doesn't say to them, go plant different churches so you can have better unity. He says, listen, this is how you're going to live together. Because as you seek to live together amidst your differences, it's going to, one, bring glory to God, and it's going to be a radical testimony to the watching world around you. So as we come to Romans 15, verses 7 through 13 today, I began in verse 7. Many of you are going to have a break between verse 7 and 8. There's a little bold heading there. Just ignore that. That's not inspired scripture, and sometimes the editors get in the way of God's inspired word. So just pretend that's not there. Verse 8 follows right after verse 7. All right? You come to chapter 15, verses 7 through 13, and in a sense, when you read the text, when you hear the text read as we just read it just a few moments ago, you get to verse 13, and it sounds as if, wow, Paul could have stopped right there. We could end Romans today. Sounds like a wrap-up to the letter almost, doesn't it? Well, in a sense, it is the end of his main argument. Now, he's going to go on throughout the rest of chapter 15 and in chapter 16 to say some very important things, equally inspired, equally important. However, the main thrust of Paul's argument does come to some level of end here in verse 13. That does not mean you can quit coming to church until we start something new, since we technically end Romans. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what we find here is, is again, the pattern of Romans. You've heard me say this time and time again. It it can be easily divided into two big sections, and that's really how we see the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, a meticulously unpacked detail of the gospel, how both Jews and Gentiles are accepted in the same way to the same Savior in the same church. And then in chapter 12 of Romans, following through the end, He explains the gospel's impact on our lives, especially as it plays out in human relationships, as we relate to non-Christians, as we relate to fellow Christians, as we relate to the government in chapter 13, and so forth and so on. So really, Romans, you know, I didn't really see this until this week as I was thinking through Romans. The first big chunk of Romans is a very detailed immersion in the gospel, pun intended. Today we're doing baptism. Immersion in the gospel. And then chapters 12 through the end is really just an exhortation on how we're to live together as gospel people. So the main idea here this morning is simple, and it's been pretty much the same main idea for the last few weeks. As brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we are called to receive each other. Not because of how alike we are but because Jesus has saved us and made us brothers and sisters. We're called to welcome each other. We're called to accept each other. We're called to to embrace each other, not because we look a certain way or we think a certain way or we act a certain way, but because we have been saved by the same way. Paul unpacks three important factors 
about this calling that we have to receive each other. And I get that there in verse 7. That's, that's the imperative, right? Therefore, welcome one another, receive one another, accept one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So first of all, we're going to look at the motive of our fellowship. The, the motive of our fellowship. It's there in verse 7. He says, welcome one another, or accept, or receive, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now this time, that, that phrase, that welcome one another, we know that he's been primarily speaking to the strong in faith, those who are not bogged down by all, all kinds of rules and regulations. He's been exhorting the strong to be patient and to love the weak, not to give up on them, but to move towards them and, and be patient with them and love them and be kind to them and those kinds of things. But now he broadens that a bit. He's, he's basically backing up now and says, all of you, welcome each other. The strong to the weak, the weak to the strong. We have a responsibility together to receive each other, to welcome each other. It's a call to mutual acceptance. It's just as important for the weak toward the strong as it is the strong toward the weak. And brothers and sisters, we know that this command to welcome each other is not always easy, is it? We annoy each other sometimes. Sometimes we're frustrated about a particular whatever the case may be. Maybe it's a viewpoint. Maybe you, maybe you believe a certain way or a certain practice. Again, we're talking about non-essential tertiary kinds of things. It's not always easy. There are differences that we have that can make it quite challenging to embrace each other. And Paul got it. He understood. He's dealing with Jews and Gentiles in the same church. It's not always natural. So the question is, if, if we're called to be together in the same church despite our tertiary or secondary differences, then what ought to drive us towards this kind of unity? Well, two things he gives in verse 7. One, it ought to be motivated by the gospel. He says, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. That's a plural you. He's saying you collectively. Welcome each other in the very same manner that Christ welcomed you and brought, him, brought you to himself. So here's the fundamental baseline for Paul. And his call for believers to accept each other was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not ethnicity, not socioeconomic standards, not music preferences, not diet, not religious calendar practices, the gospel. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. See, this idea then is that since Christ has welcomed both the strong and the weak, then the strong and the weak should welcome and accept one another. Listen, you're not more saved than the person beside you. It's not as if you have some, more, some, some additional dose of grace in your life to, to save you. Some of you, it took a, it took a longer time to save. But you're, you're, you're just as saved as any other believer. You have the same Holy Spirit. It was the same gospel that convicted you of your sin that the Lord used and woke you to faith in Christ. 
Friends, this is a critical motivation that should push us toward each other. When you, when you find yourself being repelled from another person, you need to be thinking, am I thinking about this person in light and in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I see this person who, who's a brother or sister? I'm not talking about other kinds of primary divisions that would separate us from other cults or other world religions. I'm talking about fellow Christians here. When you find yourself kind of being repelled, you, you need to be asking, how am I thinking about them? Is it through these secondary, tertiary matters where we have some differences? You know, is it because you can't stand the political sign that's in their yard? Is it because of some practice that you might see them practicing or not? None of that is the critical motivator should be the critical motivator for us to accept someone else. We accept a brother and sister in Christ because they are a brother and sister in Christ. Because Jesus loved them and died for them. And because Jesus loved you and died for you, you are called to welcome and embrace and receive other brothers and sisters. Friends, we must first see each other in view of the cross We should never base our acceptance of others on some other standard, whether it's a skin color or a social status or a political affiliation or a policy position or their gender or their age or on and on we can go. Called to welcome them because they're fellow heirs. So we're number one, motivated by the gospel. Number two, we're motivated by the glory of God. It's important to see the great end to which we are called to accept each other is not our own personal comfort. Homogeneous unit principle. It's easy for me to be around these kinds of people. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to receive people because Christ received them and received us, and it brings glory to God. Paul doesn't say anywhere in here about anything regarding your personal comfort or preferences. We're called to embrace each other despite our differences on non-essentials because it pleases the Lord. So this issue Paul is urging is not simply an issue of just, hey, be nice to people. He's going much further and deeper, isn't he? He's saying, listen, bring glory to God. Yeah, be nice to them, but, but do that because they have been accepted by the gospel, because you've been accepted in Christ, and it pleases the Lord. It's a matter of bringing honor and praise to the king. Listen, a church that's marked by diversity and yet a gospel-centered unity is able to bring glory to God in a unique and special way. Not saying that a church that lacks diversity, and we can define diversity a thousand different ways. Even in the predominantly white, blue-collar town, there were still differences among those people. Not to say that churches that lack diversity, that look more alike than not, that they can't bring glory to God. They certainly can. However, Churches that are marked by diversity and yet maintain a gospel-centered unity are able to bring glory to God in a unique way. Where Christians are able to see past tertiary differences 
and yet are committed to each other in a way that pleases the Lord. So these are the places we go first when, it, when we're called to welcome and receive other Christians. One, we welcome them as Christ has welcomed us, and we welcome them because it honors and pleases God. That's where we start. Don't start in the secondary, the tertiary, the non-essential places. Start in what's primary. They're part of the family, and you're going to live forever with them in the kingdom that God establishes. That's where we begin. That's where we begin. So that is the motive that compels us toward one another. But second, let's consider the nature of our fellowship. Paul goes on to explain why this fellowship is so important. And he pushes so hard for this kind of unity because he understands that such a united fellowship has been part of God's plan from the beginning. And that's what we see in the next few verses here. He says, welcome as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, for I tell you, notice what he says, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and, in addition to that, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This has been part of God's plan from the beginning. The reason we're called to welcome, embrace, love those who we would otherwise not be associated with is because it's a testimony to the plan of God unfolding before our very eyes. It's a testimony to what God has promised he would do. So we see these two key pieces of God's mission here. First of all, that Christ became a servant to the Jews. Verse 8. Paul says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. More specifically, Christ became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness, to prove that God is faithful to his word in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. The entire Old Testament filled with promises that God made. And what we find is that the Old Testament then becomes the runway for the Messiah to, to come into to this world, paving forward the way. Everything in the law, the writings, and the prophets pointed toward this Christ, this Messiah, this one who would come. Hundreds of promises made in the Old Testament. And they all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one that became the suffering servant, and he did so among the Jews. The word became flesh and he took on Jewish customs, embraced Jewish culture, attended the synagogue, observed Passover. He became what he was not in order to bring the blessings of salvation to the Jews and then by extension to the Gentiles. So Christ became a servant to the Jews, but he also extends mercy to the Gentiles. Through the Jewish people, the gospel would flow to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, to the nations. So what we find here is that both groups are connected to the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis, that the nations of the world, that all the peoples of the world will be blessed through him. All over the world, there would be those who would glorify God for his mercy. And then, 
Notice what Paul does. He quotes four Old Testament texts to make his point. Four passages. In verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 18, verse 49. As it is written, notice back to to verse 4, by the way. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's laying the foundation for hope by quoting the Bible. Psalm 18, in verse 9, we see, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. God's king here is is portrayed as rejoicing over the Gentiles, that he is vindicated and that he would rule the world. And he, in essence, is seen here singing praise to, to God. Verse 9, and in verse 10, we see a second text that's quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Moses' song here, that the whole world would indeed rejoice under God's rule. You see that in verse 10. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Then he quotes in verse 11, yet another text from Psalm 117, verse 1. uh, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is a call to the world to rejoice. And in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah the prophet in chapter 11, verse 10, pointing that David's greater son will rule. And again, Isaiah says, verse 12, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. You see what Paul has done here? He has quoted. He has quoted from the law, from the writings, and the prophets to make a point that God's salvation would come to the Jews, yes, but it would go to the ends of the earth. So the point here, I think, that Paul is making is that the Christians in Rome, or wherever they may be found, are to anticipate this final worldwide rule that's coming, Jews and Gentiles together, the nations drawn in together into the kingdom, that we're to anticipate that day by living together now in the present, in harmony and in unity together. Brothers and sisters, any church, even this church, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, is living proof of Christ's willingness to serve a culture not his own so that those he served would be blessed. And in light of his selfless love, we are called in the same way to love one another, to pursue harmony and fellowship with each other in a way that's motivated by the gospel, by God's plan to save the Jews and Gentiles, and in a way that brings glory and praise to God. We see this in Jesus, clearly. He, he's, he, he, this is the purpose for which he came, but we also see it in other places in the New Testament. In Peter, in chapter 10 of Acts, when he became a servant to a culture not his own, so that the Gentiles could hear the gospel and be brought in. Paul, when he became all things to all men, saw even more fruitfulness among the Gentiles. So we see that this The nature of God's mission, the nature of our fellowship should reflect the nature of God's mission. He came to be a servant to the circumcised and he came to extend mercy to the Gentiles. Same Savior, same hope. 
same family. It's a beautiful testimony, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture of what we see. So the question that we would do well to consider this morning was, well, what does that, what, what does that mean for us? We think through these things, what does that mean for us in the church? Asking questions is of what could happen when we become a servant, like Jesus, to those who aren't like us? What happens when weak Christians in the faith, weak in the faith, if you weren't here for those sermons, you ought to go back and listen. Those who are weak in the faith, those who have very sensitive consciences, maybe are bogged down by kinds of rules and regulation. What happens when the weak in faith see somebody rolling their eyes at them because they're not free enough? Or maybe those who are strong in the faith, who aren't bogged down by rules and regulations or legalistic kinds of things, when people are judging you because you're not strict enough. According to this passage, we see that we're called to move toward each other, called to serve each other, even in our differences, even when we don't share the same customs and the same ideas and the same kinds of things, we're called to embrace each other. And we could, we could apply that across the board, many different kinds of examples. It means that we're called to embrace each other even when there are certain barriers that would normally keep us from not engaging. We are called, commanded, expected to move towards people that do not look like us. Jesus modeled this perfectly as he left the glory of heaven to become a man so that the nations would be gathered into one kingdom with one king. Called to do that inside the church, friends. We don't have time for petty divisions over non-essential matters. We're called and expected and in commanded to love one another. Now, I'm not saying we should never talk about our differences. You may be tempted to think, well, this is the third sermon now, and he's not mentioned. Well, what do we do when we disagree? Should we not at some point talk about those? Yes, you should. But how you do that matters. In fact, in verse 14, he's going to move on, and he's going to talk about how we're competent, how we're able, capable, filled with knowledge, able to instruct each other. There should be that in the church. Primarily, we're called to love each other in view of the gospel because it reflects the plan and mission of God. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He does not say, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you look like each other, if you think like each other, if you vote like each other, if you eat like each other, if you sing like each other, if you dress like each other. On and on we could go. He says, if you have love for one another. But then that begs the question, well, that's inside the church. What about outside the church? So when we think through this, this call that we have here toward each other should inform how we ought to engage those outside the church. After all, we are called to love sinners with the desire to see them come, become part of the family. 
And that means we need not be afraid to engage those who are very, very different than us. Quoting from the book Conscience again, Andy Nacelli said, Romans 15 is the soaring description of the glorious worldwide mission of the church, and Jesus is the cross-cultural missionary par excellence. He understood his mission, and he came and be, he became a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us to save us. And brothers and sisters, how we treat each other in the church will prepare us and inform us for how we are to engage the world around us. And when we divide ourselves into smaller and smaller subsets of people because we're like this and like that, so we can be more and more comfortable on matters of opinion and conscience, we really do a disservice to the overall mission of the church. Listen, if the only people you hang out with are those who make you comfortable, then you are actively working against the mission and plan of God. You're not neutral. Friends, we must go to the nations. This is a call. This is being implied here in this text is a call that we go forth with the gospel of the first 11 chapters to tell the world that Jesus loved them and died for them and so that they can be welcomed in and grafted in and brought into the family of God. And then when they're there, even in all their little differences and little things that frustrate us, we're called to love them and embrace them and care for them. Yes, the, the nature of our fellowship. Then what does that produce? What about the fruit of our fellowship, number three? Verse 13, Paul, after he reflects upon plan and mission of God and calling that we have to welcome each other despite our differences, he says, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Here Paul does something similar to what he did in verse 5. He expresses a desire, and almost it's, it's almost in the form of a prayer. And his desire, his prayer, is that believers in Rome would be thoroughly gospel-minded. And as a result of having their hearts set upon the future of what the gospel promises, they would in the present overflow with joy and peace. In other words, peace, this sense of security and freedom from anxiety, and joy is a byproduct of a united and hope-filled people. You say, well, hope, hope in what? Go back to verse 12. Again, he quotes here, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Well, who's Jesse? He was David's father. King David's father. And David, we know, became king of Israel. And we know that the Messiah would come from this line. So that the son of David would become a common phrase and common reference to the Messiah. And he would become the king, but the greater king, the lasting king, than King David. And we know that that was fulfilled in Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that Romans begins with that kind of reference in all the way back to chapter 1? Let's just go back and preach through Romans again. 
All the way back in chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. The gospel is in the Old Testament. Promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh. Now he's picking back up on that, the root of Jesse, son of David. He will come. It's what Isaiah was looking for. This is what Paul is saying has happened. And when he would come, the Gentiles, he would rule, and they would hope in him. Listen, all he's saying here is that Jesus was the fulfillment of this, and he's saying, listen, you must find your hope in him, in Jesus. Find your hope in Jesus, Gentiles and Jews. Find your hope in Christ alone, not in your own ability, not in your own wisdom, not in your own friendships and relationships or in someone else. Find your hope in the root of Jesse, who will come, Isaiah said, and Paul says he has come. There's where hope is found. My hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is where our hope is. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is where you can have hope. This is what God has done for this world. He so loved this world that he gave his only son who would come into this world, leaving the beauty and glory of heaven to invade a culture not like his own so that he could rescue and redeem and restore a people not like him and make them one. Friend, if you would realize this, and if you'd realize that your sin before a holy God keeps you separated from him forever, for eternity, and that your only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ by faith and yield to him as Lord of your life, then you can have your sins forgiven and be part of this family that we're talking about today. Paul knew that the presence of such joy and peace that he mentions in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, he knew that the presence of this joy and this peace would leave little room for quarreling and conflict between the weak and the strong. Listen, show me a church that's divided, and I'll show you a church that has lost their sight of the gospel. Some way, somehow. The source of this joy is not found in our own comforts. If you think that peace and joy is found by gathering around people like you so that you can feel good about yourself, that's the wrong kind of joy and peace. We're talking about lasting joy, lasting peace that leaves little room for conflict. This comes from the Lord. This is supernatural joy, supernatural peace that comes from God. It's what we're told. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's the same Holy Spirit that pours God's love into our hearts, as we saw in chapter 5. The same Holy Spirit who assures us of a future resurrection in chapter 8, who makes and reassures us that we are children of God, who groans for us with prayers to God, is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us to overflow with a united, gospel-centered, joy-filled hope. Friends, in short, this is what Romans is all about. Paul was wanting to make the gospel big, so big, so beautiful, that Christian unity, which is a testimony to the world and brings glory to God, is built on the right thing. We can build churches on all kinds of things today, and you see it all day, every day. 
But if we don't build the church on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will crumble. And it's all to the end that God be praised. Churches that take their gaze off the gospel and prioritize uniformity over non-essential matters are in great danger. So Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, let this be a clear exhortation to each of us. Let's talk about the minor things, but let's not major on them. Let's not ignore them. Let's be Christian as we talk about them. But if we're going to get, if we're going to be blamed for being all caught up over something, let that be the gospel. Let the gospel be which drives and fuels our overarching concern for our own lives, for our families, for each other. Let us be radically devoted to the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let us love each other first and foremost in view of that gospel. So where do we go from here? We go to chapter 15, verse 14 next week. What about today? What does this call us to? Just three things, three quick things, and we're done. First of all, it should call us to prayer. Pray. Listen, as you pray, you and I, we need to be praying for gospel unity and protection against petty divisions. Every single one of us that has been in church very long can point to and know about churches that get all divided and all hot and bothered over minor things. We live in a divided time where tribalism and camps are seeking to win the day. And we begin to view each other based upon what news channel we watch. What sports teams maybe we pull for, I don't know. Foods we eat customs and practices we 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 begin we we want to be in our camp and we want our tribe to be the loudest because gospel unity is not like that if we're going to be loud about something let's be loud about jesus and i think every single believer can do that let's pray for our own hearts to be kind and patient with each other let's pray for those who may disagree with us Maybe spending 30 minutes in prayer for a person or 10 minutes in prayer for a person that may disagree with you over something instead of spending two hours on how you want to win the argument. Pray. Number two, pursue. Let's not be afraid to get uncomfortable when it comes to community and fellowship and unity. Let's value the gospel more than our own preferences and comfort. People, listen, people are not objects to control or manipulate in the non-essential matters. They are fellow image bearers and family members we are called to love and praise. Pray, pursue, and praise. Friends, may our love and care for each other result in lasting praise to the Lord. We are called to be living sacrifices. And how we love other people is in some way an act of worship to God. So let's be found faithful praying. Let's be found faithful pursuing. And let's be found faithful praising the Lord in light of all of these things. Let's pray together.
Father, we do acknowledge that we live in difficult days, we live in divided time, a time where it's easy to get caught up in all of the things that divide people today. And these things are not unimportant. Many of these things are serious. Many of these things are impacting not only our lives, but the lives of others and things that we need to be giving thoughtful care and attention to, whether it's in or outside the church. So, Lord, we realize that we live in times where it's easy to grow divided. It's easy to grow at odds with others. Father, as you call, as you call the church of Rome to welcome and accept and embrace each other, Lord, would we hear that today as a call to us, as a call for us as your people to be loving each other well in view of the gospel and in view of your glory, that that would be the primary driving factor in all of our hearts, that we would be compelled today, that we would be motivated by the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us as we seek to love others in the same way. Father, that we, would all, that we would see it all as culminating in the glory and praise of your name. Father, we need help to do this. We can't do this on our own. We know that it's easy to be caught up in things that, that so easily entangle and divide us. And so, Father, we ask for your help in that. We ask for your protection. We ask for wisdom. We ask for patience and love. Lord, that you would change our hearts, that you would help us to see each other in light of Christ and the gospel, first and foremost, before we see each other in view of anything else. Father, would you forgive us where we have neglected that, where we have been at odds, or maybe not even at odds, but even in our own minds have kind of looked down or condemned others because they're not a certain way or think a certain way. Father, would you help us as a church to be a beautiful picture of gospel unity so that we can see each other grow and flourish in Christ, so that we can bring hope to this community and to the ends of the earth, and so that you will be praised. We pray all this in Christ's name.